Okay, you got. Uh, go ahead and grab grab your seats. Uh, and while you guys are sitting down, I'm going to invite uh, Matt Avery to come up. Matt, will you join us up? Join me up here. So guys, one of the things that I love about being a part of Midtown is that we're a part of a family of churches, uh, which means that there are five different Midtown congregations meeting across the city today. They're meeting in different parts of the city. They're doing their service in their own way that reflects and speaks to their specific community. It's what we get to do over here in East that we love so much. And this morning, we get to hear from my friend Matt Avery. Uh, so Matt is the pastor of our congregation over in West Nashville, and is going to be bringing the word to us this morning. Thank you. Great. I guess you don't need this. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks, Brent. Um, hey, I'm glad to be with you this morning. And uh, as we start, something grabbed my attention this week. Is anybody following the Powerball? Okay. What, what's the Powerball up to? $1.9 billion. Okay, how many people play Powerball? Okay, you're a, liars, you're liars. I'm in church, I don't play Powerball. Guys, well, in case you didn't know, it's really dumb to play Powerball. So, I'm glad you kept your hands down. Um, I'm, I am serious, it's dumb. Uh, I, read, I read an article... <laughs> I read an article this week about this woman who they call the queen of state lotteries. She is a woman who has like apparently cracked the code and there have been multiple states that have hired her to start their lottery systems or revamp their lottery systems and she just brings the thunder and increases their profit like multitudes over. And it was really interesting reading this, so, so stick with me, I promise this is going to going to uh, come back. So if, if playing the lottery is so ridiculous, why, why do people keep playing it? Why do you guys, you, keep playing it religiously? <laughs> okay, well, listen, from this article, uh, it's a game where reason and logic are rendered obsolete and hopes and dreams are on sale. This woman learned to make the lottery fantasy tangible by making sure that winning on a smaller scale is something that people experience. She said, if you play a lot and you play for three years and you never win, you're not going to keep playing. So to prevent player burnout, she also pioneered games that had different prices, designs, themes, just to keep it fresh, keep it interesting. Uh, they take advantage of this uh, phenomenon called framing. Most people frame the lottery as, boy, I could win a million dollars or hundred million dollars rather than considering what they might lose. Uh, says one Princeton economist, that to them a dollar seems inconsequential, but as they pay their dollars, those dollars stack up over a lifetime, and they never win, they only lose, but they don't see it that way. And also, they've learned to frame people's situations. People, they've done these studies, and people who see themselves as poor, or poorer than their neighbors, are twice as likely to play the lottery. Okay, so... Um, now, connecting to where we're going this morning, um, there is a spiritual war that is being waged for human souls throughout human history. There is an enemy, the enemy of God. If we want to get real simple, God is about redeeming and connecting with his beloved treasure, which is people. And the enemy is about ripping that bond apart, keeping it apart, keeping people blind to who God is, how he loves them, what he's really like, and where to find life. 
And it's a little bit uh, like a little demonic lottery game. And he is, he is seeking, the enemy and his, his minions are, are seeking to keep man separated from God, to tell them that life and their hopes and dreams are found somewhere else apart from him. And so as we've been going through the book of Acts, we've been talking about what it is to be the church, what it is to be on this mission with God that is the church. We, we can't separate this gathering of God's people from the mission of Jesus that he calls us to. Uh, because if we do, then we cease to be the church. We just are a collection of people who happen to believe some similar things. But God has called his people together to be the church, to be on this mission, to, uh, to be set free and to set others free. And so as we follow him on this mission, he is like Paul in this passage that we're going to get into here in a second. Um, and Caroline Bonetti, if you want to come on up and read our passage. Um, Jesus is continually enabling us to see behind the curtain uh, of, of what's really going on in this world and, and the spiritual forces that are at work uh, to, to help us fight for our own hearts, to fight for each other's hearts, and to fight for the hearts of Nashville, people who don't know him yet. So um, we're in Acts 17, 16 through 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And when they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the Unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself to all mankind life, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like, silver, is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were the Dionysius, the area. Dionysus the Areopagate, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Thanks, Caroline. It's the word of the Lord. 
Father, we are gathered in your presence as people who are riddled with, with idol worship. Uh, as John Calvin said, our hearts are idol-making factories, and uh, we, we keep being fooled and fooling ourselves and enjoying being fooled, and we play the game, and we, uh, we are blind, and we also see, and it's just this big mess. And so, Jesus, would you come this morning, uh, for those of us who don't know you, would you reveal all of this for the first time? Lord, would you open eyes? Would you convict hearts, Lord, for those of us who do know you, who continue to be fooled and to run to idols, uh, would you continue to do your good work of healing, Lord? Would you heal us? Would you transform us? And I pray these prayers in faith and confidence because you promise in your word that you will do these things. Thank you that everything that we do in you, we can do in confidence because we know that you have promised us that you are making all things new, including us, Lord. And so would you transform us and use us as vessels for transformation now as we receive this word from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you've been with us, uh, you may wonder, we, we've made a big leap in terms of we've moved from, I think, chapter 9 or 10 to uh, 17. And really what we're trying to do is these are, these are stories between then and here uh, of the gospel going out and the effects that it has on people. And so we're trying to uh, just get this collection to help us see um, examples of, of what God is doing. And so now we find ourselves in chapter 17. We find ourselves in Athens. Uh, Paul is waiting on Silas and Timothy in Athens. Athens is the cultural epicenter of the Greek world. Um, think Silicon Valley or, or New York City. Uh, it's named for Athena, the goddess of wisdom. And uh, if you don't know, Nashville, uh, we have grabbed the, the title, the Athens of the South. Um, because we are, are special. Um, and it says that as Paul was here waiting for his friends to get here, he was provoked in his spirit. And that word provoked means deeply angered. He was deeply angered in his spirit when he saw that the city was full of idols. So if you're not familiar, the Acropolis was this, basically this shopping mall of, of gods and goddesses. It was this um, place where you walked up and down these aisles of altars to these gods and goddesses, and you would honor the gods and goddesses with sacrifices, with gifts, with rituals um, to keep bad things away and to bring good things to you. And if, if that kind of idol worship wasn't your flavor, then there were also subtler forms of idolatry with these various schools of philosophy. And these schools of philosophy had been established in Athens, uh, very appealing to the intellectual elites. Paul names, two of those schools are named here, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Um, and really, they are more alike, are more similar than they are different, these schools of philosophy. And, and here, here, here's what they're like in uh, broad brush. It's self-actualization apart from the gods. So, so we're going to look at the people who are in the Acropolis worshiping these gods and say, you know what, either those gods don't exist or those gods are so distant, they don't care about you. So why are you giving your time to them? They, they could care less about your little lives. So what we're gonna do instead is, is develop this system, this way of living to help maximize our potential. Um, it's this whole idea that we are cosmic accidents. We're gonna die one day. There's not a God that made you. There's not a God that's gonna save you from death. So you better yourself to be as happy as possible until fate comes for you, and fate comes for us all. 
So change what you can and accept with dignity the things that you can't. And they're not going to make a Pixar movie about this. And so Paul sees this. He's, he is, is just cut to the heart with deep anger. And it's not anger at these people. It's anger for these people. Because anger, healthy anger, is a product of love. Anger is, is a, a response in us of love that wants to fight for somebody and to protect something. And he loves Jesus, and he loves these people, and he is angry for them at what he is witnessing in this place. And so I want to stop here and just do a little sidebar on, on what are idols? Why is Paul so angry about this? Idols are false gods. They're illusions crafted by men and empowered by demons to keep men from the one true God. They're like like we said before, a demonic lottery system. They offer life but bring death. They overpromise, they underdeliver. Deuteronomy 32 says this God's people stirred him to jealousy by worshiping strange gods, making sacrifices to demons who are not really gods at all. It's this idea that this, this enemy of God, Satan and his demons, um, has, has crafted these elaborate systems of the way that the world works and set up these false deities these false schools of philosophy to lead people astray and to keep them from the relationship with God that they were made for. And, and when you worship an idol, you pay in more than you get out. You give your dollar a day and you never win the lottery. Even when you're lucky and you're one of the lucky few who does win big, you realize that you haven't won at all. You, know, you hear the stories about the people who actually win the lottery and, and it doesn't bring happiness, it brings misery. <laughs> Psalm 16:4 The sorrows of all who run after another god shall multiply. Psalm 115 we read this morning Those who make dead idols and those who trust in dead idols will become like them. Your soul, your heart will be dead. We sacrifice our hearts, our families, our souls, our humanity to these idols that we worship hoping to find life and even when we win we lose. And eventually we try maybe to shut, out, shut down our hearts and we slide over to these schools of philosophy. Okay, you know what? This is all garbage. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to live in reality. I'm going to be a big boy or a big girl and recognize I'm going to die. There's not a God that's coming for me, so just got to do the best I can. It makes me think of Shawshank Redemption. Hope is a dangerous thing. <laughs> so we, we shut down our hearts. We shut down our hopes. We stop telling the truth. We stop bringing ourselves to life. We stop engaging. But here's the thing, because of how we're made, we can't really stop. So then what happens is this patchwork of schools of philosophy and idolatry. It's like smoking a cig and wearing the patch at the same time. And then our life just looks really weird because we're doing all these things and pretending like we're not doing any of these things and pretending like these things are working for us and they're not working for us. So why do we keep playing the lottery? Why do we keep running after these idols? Well, like our lottery, this idolatry, it's a game where reason and logic are rendered obsolete and hopes and dreams are on sale. And there's no one better at selling hopes and dreams than Satan. The enemy has learned how to make lottery fantasy tangible by making sure that winning on a small scale is something that we experience. And the game design keeps changing to keep things interesting. So, I mean, let's look at our lives. Let's look at my life. Um, what, are the, what are the idols in my life? Well, we can start small and say college football. I'm a Tennessee fan. Um, 
Woof. Uh, <laughs> but think about this. Even, even when you win, you lose. I mean, if you, like, look at Alabama. The, the end keeps, like, the finish line keeps moving. You get good enough to where you win everything, and then that's not satisfying. And so then you keep wanting to win everything, and there's never enough. And so now if you're an Alabama fan, you're miserable because there's only neutral and worse. You cannot, you, there's no higher to go. So there's only a downside every time they take the field. Because if they don't win everything, then we're disappointed. And then if my team stinks and they don't ever win everything, then I'm disappointed because they're not winning everything. But there's never a winner. I never get to a place where it's satisfying. Um, look at fitness. Look at beauty. These things that we chase, and, we, and, and if you're one of the lucky few who gets those things, if you're in this elite fitness category because you're an athlete or you're just very attractive, um, you're very fit, or if you're beautiful, then guess what? Even though you've won, you lose because one day you're not going to be. And when your identity is so strongly rooted in this thing that is giving you these little, these little uh, bursts of, of happiness um, and that gets cut off, it's even more disorienting and more confusing. It's why um, people who are beautiful or very famous uh, or very good at a, a particular sport are often miserable when that little season of time has passed, when that window is over. You know, think about family and kids. You know, if I, if I put it in, if I do the right thing, if I make these little sacrifices at the altar of my family and my kids, then everyone's going to stay healthy and happy. But guess what? We live in a fallen world. That's not going to happen. And when I, when I expect what I don't get, then, then it's just all exposed. It's all for naught. Um, and we even treat, there's a, there's a form, I'm going to put it in quotes because it's not Christianity, but we treat Christianity like this too. I'm going to attend worship. I'm going to do the, do the things that I'm supposed to do. And I've, I've made a little contract with God where now he's obligated to me. And he's going to make all my wildest dreams come true because I'm a good boy. And I go to church and I read my Bible and I've, I don't sin in extreme ways. And then inevitably when these things fail and we're, we've gotten tired of getting back up and trying other versions of these things, we start to numb out with this like pseudo-spiritual self-help, these schools of philosophy. Well, if I just practice gratitude or I just read this latest book on this life hack, then I'm going to figure out how to be happy. And you know what? That's not going to do it either. And so what does Jesus do through Paul here? Back to, back to our story. Um, he goes and he reasons. He goes and engages in conversation. Paul goes out to the places where people would expect to have conversations about things like this. So for us, you could think about like the gym or the bar or the coffee shop or maybe a book club where people are talking about some of these things. And he goes and he engages them in conversation. And how do they respond? Well, they respond the same way that I respond when people challenge my idols. Some of them call him a babbler. That's a, a, a little term that uh, means seed picker. And it's this idea, it's a charlatan, basically. It's somebody who gathers up little bits and pieces of philosophy and tries to pass themselves off as somebody brilliant. I mean, we, we're very familiar with that. If we're honest, I think a lot of us make a practice of that in our lives. We, we want to know the latest and greatest information. We want to seem like we're on the forefront. We're on the crest of the wave of whatever new cultural trend there is. And, uh, and so when somebody comes to me and challenges me, 
then my first response is jealousy. You're just trying to be like me. You're trying to get a leg up on me, so I'm not going to listen to you. Who do you think you are? And then it says some people called him a preacher of foreign divinities. You know, this thing that you're bringing is threatening. It's scary. It's threatening my little, my, my sad little life that I built around self-worship. This little illusion that idolatry is really working for me. And so eventually as he's meeting and talking with all these people, he's threatening enough. This idea of Jesus is threatening enough that they take him to the Areopagus. This is the city council. This is the, the high council that's in charge of, of keeping the educational, philosophical, religious life of the city of Athens. So they take him before this council because he was bringing some strange things to their ears. So we want to know, therefore, what these things mean. And here's what's really cool about that. That word strange means it's like a mix of fear and wonder together. These people were engaged. They were trapped in what it says here, nothing except telling and hearing something new every day. We, we just think we're so brilliant, and all we're doing is learning and telling these new, 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 new things. They're so new. They're so cool. They're so, have you read this new book? Have you heard this new philosophy? Have you seen this new documentary? Everything's new. Everything makes me special when I tell you about it because it makes me new, and it makes me interesting. And, and they are engaged, it says, in doing nothing but this all the time. So guess what that also tells us? That this is actually not fulfilling. We're never arriving anywhere. It's all actually the same thing, just with a different design, like those lottery games. Like we're just moving the ball a little bit every time, but it's all the same. Nothing is new. Ecclesiastes 1.9, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun except for what Paul has to bring to these people. This is strange. This is a little scary, but it also fills me with wonder, and I want to know what you're talking about because this is not like all the other new things that I'm hearing about. This is unique. This is different. This is only the, the true, truly the only new thing that there is to hear about. And so Paul stands and delivers, and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. I am watching your life. We could say the same thing to the men and women of Nashville. Men and women of Nashville, I can see that in every way, in every area of your life, you are very religious. Even if you are agnostic, even if you are an atheist, you are very religious. Look at how you make sacrifices. Look at how you put your hope in these things and, and break open these fortune cookies and, and practice this vague spirituality. Look at the way you spend your life and where you hope and what you're afraid of. Oh, you are very religious in every way. And he says, you even have an altar to the unknown God. So again, just like all the, 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 the sharing everything and hearing everything that's new, you have an altar to the unknown God because all the gods that you know aren't doing it for you. You put in the things you're supposed to put in, but you don't get out the things that they're promised to give you. So you have an altar to the unknown God because maybe there's one that we don't know yet. There's something stirring inside of you that all of the ones that we do know are not enough. All of the ones that we do know don't seem to be interested in us. They don't seem to be real. They don't seem to be working. The system seems to be broken, but we don't know what else to do. And so now we have this altar to the unknown God that maybe he would reveal himself. And Paul says, guess what? 
he will reveal himself, and he is doing so right now through me. Let me tell you about this unknown God who you are trying to find your way to to worship. And here's the, the, the truly new teaching that Paul brings, and I'm just going to kind of summarize what he says here. First, you are not God. All of this idol worship, all of these schools of philosophy, uh, really there's a peace underneath all of this in which you are trying to be your own God. You are trying to be so new, so special, so blessed that, that you are in control of your own life. That all of this is just this shallow illusion of you really self-actualizing into being a God yourself and living life apart from him. Well, let me tell you something. You can't do that. God doesn't need you. All the, all the little temples you set up, all the little sacrifices you make, you're kidding yourself. Because if there was a God worth worshiping, he won't need those things from you. In fact, you need everything from him. You are dependent on him every second of every day for the breath that you need in your lungs to make it to the next moment. This is who God really is. He does not need you. He created everything. He sustains everything. And the fact that you are not God is a great blessing to you. Because to actually win the lottery and be your own God is not a dream. It is a nightmare. Second, but you can know this God. You cannot be this God, but you can know this God. You know, he's not like these various false gods that are distant and unpredictable and just this vague spirituality that there's some force out there. We don't really know about it, so we're just kind of like in this foggy mist of um, talking about this being or this force in the universe. No, 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 he's not like that. If he made you for your heart to hunger so desperately for intimate relationship and for love and community, then don't you think that he himself is a God who created you in his image so that you can know him in those ways? There's a part of you that wants God to remain shadowy and misty as this vague spiritual force because, again, that allows you to be your own God. If I don't really know exactly what he's all about, if there's not this universal moral code built into the universe then I can kind of just claim ignorance and live however I feel like. But you actually can know God. And next thing, he is worth knowing. This God is worth knowing. Look at this Jesus who it says in John 1 is the image of the invisible God. He has made this invisible God known, God with skin on, this Jesus who is fully God and fully man. He is worth knowing. He is beautiful. He is full of grace for you. He is full of mercy for you. He is full of love for you. If you look at him, he's, he's essentially the greater Paul. As Paul came into the city and was so troubled with, so angered because of his, his deep heart of love for these men and women that he just couldn't help it, he had to engage. And he was mocked and he was brought, dragged before the city council to, to answer for these teachings. Well, our Jesus has, has put on flesh and he's come into this world that was full of idolatry because he was so disturbed in his heart, because his, his soul was so angered at what this enemy had done and was doing, and his, his soul was so stirred with deep love for his treasure, which is you, that he would come 
and that he would lay himself down and he would engage with the world in such a way that he was not only mocked, but he was beaten and hung on a cross and dragged before the so-called authorities of the world. And he was glad to do that so that he could take the punishment for sin on himself that was due for us. So that now we don't have to fear God anymore. And that's what the enemy doesn't want any of us to see is that we don't have to be afraid of God anymore because of Jesus Christ. Jesus has good news. That's why it's called good news is, hey, you are a sinner. You are not God. You have tried really hard to be God and that's extremely offensive. But guess what? You don't have to be afraid of God anymore because he loves you so much that before you even thought about him, he went to all these great lengths, the greatest length, so that you could have life with him and all of that sin is covered in Jesus. If you would just believe and follow him, then you will have the life that you can't earn. You can't sacrifice to get to. You can't chase down like you're trying here. But the good news is you'll find it because he'll give it to you. The, the, the thing that you were made for, this intimate union with him, he will give you, he comes to give you because he is, he is the one true God who is worthy of worship. And he is returning. He commands you to turn from your idols and return to God because there is a day coming where Jesus will come and he will judge every man, woman that has ever existed. And we will either be judged in him, hidden in his righteousness, safe from God's judgment for all time to have eternal life with him, or we will be judged apart from him in our pride. And we will be separated from him and from life forever. And so really what Paul is doing here for these people and for us is he is saying, wake up. Wake up. Do not stay in this place. Do not let this system, these lottery systems of demonic activity, do not let your, the, own, the games that your own heart plays deaden your soul and make you settle for things that are not life. Wake up. Hope great hopes. Fear deep fears. Long with great longing. Love with deep love. Allow yourself to be disappointed. Don't be afraid of disappointment. Push through that disappointment because what it's going to do is it's going to lead you to what is real. Don't deaden your heart. Wake it up. And thank God we don't have to do that in our own power, that Jesus is doing this in us. And we are responding. And, and, and he is calling us to fight for our hearts, to fight for each other's hearts in this place, and to fight for the hearts of the people who might be wanting to <laughs> uh, punch us in the face, who are, who are not our, our friends yet who are not our brothers and sisters yet, but they are dying. And he's saying, go to them, fight for their hearts too. And we are gonna respond to this message like these people did here. Some will mock when they hear this. You know, somebody can mock when they hear this message who, who sits in this place and hears this every single week. Just this cynical, like, yeah, I'm, I'm here, I'm going through the motions because I don't know what else to do, but I don't really believe this. It's too good to be true. I've been hurt too much. Some people need to think about it and hear it more. Uh, that may be you, but listen, uh, if that's you, don't fall into the trap of staying there forever. Uh, there's, there's no such thing as three places. We're either in Christ or we're not in Christ. And so if you're in a place where you need to hear more, then you need to go hear more and don't stay there. And then lastly, some will accept it. Some will accept this teaching. Some will believe that this is true and they'll find the life that they've been searching for this whole time. 
And so now, uh, as Brant said, we get to celebrate the other sacrament, the sacrament of communion, uh, where we can run to Jesus and we can ask him to help us turn from our idols and, turn, and return to him. And for some of us, that may be the first time that this is happening. You may be turning from your idols and returning to Jesus for the first time. And for many of us, it's the millionth time. We are so frail. We are so easily deceived. And we need our Jesus always to be unblinding our eyes, convicting us of sin, and leading us to what is really life, which is life with him. And so um, he gave us this sacrament to practice, uh, this, this physical, tangible uh, experience of a spiritual reality. Uh, the night that he was betrayed, um, he has disciples in the upper room celebrating the Passover feast, and he said, this bread, uh, this is me broken for you, and you need to feast on me. Um, you will find life in my broken body, uh, me covering your sin. And he said, this cup uh, of wine is, is actually the cup of the blood of a new covenant. When you drink this, you are not drinking the cup of God's wrath. You are drinking the cup of the celebration of the wedding feast because I have done everything my blood shed for you covers you and now you by faith await this future glory with God the one that your heart was made for and he said I want you to celebrate this feast until I return and that's what we're doing here and he meets us in a mysterious way and strengthens us in this feast so uh, if you would lower the kneelers um, in case you want to use those. And then we're going to have a couple songs. And uh, as we sing these songs sometime uh, during these two songs, if you are somebody who is trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation, um, knowing that you are a sinner in need of grace and he is the only Savior, uh, then come and take the elements, um, wherever those elements may be, because I'm not at East. Uh, I don't know how they pass, but they will, they will get to you somehow. Uh, take them and, uh, and know that you have life. Father, we, uh, we love you. We need you. Uh, we long to love you more. Uh, would you come and, and do your good work? Open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts. Enable us to fight uh, along with you, you who are the conqueror, who has defeated death and, and enemy and Satan and sin. Help us to fight alongside you for our hearts and to fight alongside you for the hearts of our brothers and sisters and for those that we don't know. Strengthen us now. In Jesus' name, amen.